You know, last week we spoke about the one whom Solomon referred to as the sluggard. Uh, the sluggard essentially is someone who does nothing and yet received God's very strong uh, judgment and condemnation. If the sluggard who does nothing is the recipient of God's judgment, can you imagine uh, how God responds to the one who does evil? And that's what we're sort of going to take a look at tonight. And you'll see, in fact, what God specifically hates. Uh, here's how the text before us begins. It's in Proverbs chapter 6. As you know, we've been going through Proverbs, which contains wisdom for living, skillfulness in living life. And it's as if wisdom is screaming out to us, essentially, live life according to the manufacturer's manual. Live according to biblical principles, and you'll do better. So here's what it says in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth. So here's what happened. Uh, God made us all in his image. It's just a wonderful blessing. We've been created in the image of God. So that gives us inherent worth. But um, each of us, though we are created in the image of God, in the course of living life, each of us makes different choices. Uh, we follow different paths. Um, we go in different directions. And uh, this passage uh, strongly is indicating some of us choose directions uh, that not only do not contribute to the well-being of society, uh, those people actually become a detriment. They're referred to as worthless and wicked people. Uh, these are antisocial people. These are people who are actually uh, uh, exploiters, uh, not contributors uh, to society. And uh, uh, frankly, as you will see, uh, uh, God hates this kind of antisocial uh, behavior. And Solomon wants his son, that's who he's writing to, but by extension, all of us, he wants his son to face this reality. In the world, there are certain people who, frankly, if we're honest, have to be characterized as being wicked and worthless. And he wants his son to be aware of the fact that not everyone out there is a good person, even if they claim to be. And God wants us to be so warned. I don't think he wants us to think the worst of people, but I don't think he wants us to be naive and taken in because there are some people who are, as they are described here, worthless and, and wicked. Now, I have to tell you, passages like this one are very unpopular uh, to, to speak about. Uh, I don't want to, to tell you the truth. I'll tell you why. This passage, I think you're going to see, provides very little peace and comfort. It just doesn't. But I didn't write it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just reading it. And some of you here uh, tonight are sorely in need of peace and comfort. And I'm just going to have to trust, uh, uh, trust sovereign God who loves you and knows you far more than I ever could. I'm going to have to trust him to use even this text to minister to your hurts and pains and brokenness even as we sit here. Uh, left to me, it's not going to happen. This is a very rough passage of Scripture. It's very distressing. You know why? This text gives us a very distressing look at the human heart. It shows us that our hearts are capable of untold, serious sin. So this passage is about the depravity of man. It's kind of a fancy title, but we're depraved from birth. 
conceived in sin, the scriptures say. So this gives us, it's like a mirror which shows us our potential to sin. And many, I'm one of them, would prefer to avoid this passage. But here it is uh, before us. And, and it gives us the truth about our nature. And the truth, I think in this case, really, really hurts. It does hurt. The truth is that people created in the image of God still have the capacity and very strong inclination to turn away from God and commit acts of very significant wrongdoing and immorality and depravity. So, so, so when you take a look into texts uh, such as this one, you see the human heart and you don't see it through distorted human eyes. You really see it through God's eyes. And so here's a little bit more about this worthless and wicked person we are being warned about. Here it is in verse 13. He's one who winks the eye. He signals with his feet and he points with his fingers. And all that, you know what they are? They're gestures in ancient days used by a con man. A con man would be making promises to someone but he would, through these gestures, be indicating to his cronies nearby he, he has no intent to fulfill his promise. It would be like someone making a promise to you, but then winking, wink, winking to his buddies so as to indicate, I don't have any intent to keep my promise. Folks, this is the stuff of, of a con man. And, and this person is further described in Verse 14, as one who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. So this is the kind of person who is, to his or her credit, deeply committed to a perverse lifestyle. It's a heart issue. It's in his heart. Therefore, here's the consequence, verse 15, his calamity will come suddenly, instantly he'll be broken and what's more, there will be no healing. So his con, his deception, his evil doing simply will not go on forever. In fact, in an instant, it could all come crumbling down uh, upon him. And his evil and perverse waves can be brought to a very quick and sudden end. Now, people in the days of the Bible when this was written uh, struggle with the same uh, issue you and I struggle with today. And it's this. Why do Wicked people prosper. <laughs> that was the question they asked uh, because it was a very real one then as it is now. In fact, I can show this to you. Uh, in Psalm 73, verses 3 and on, listen to what it says. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They're, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth, surely in vain. I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. The psalmist is struggling with this enigma. Why do good things happen to bad people while bad things are happening to good people? It's the same struggle we have 
today. Well, this verse under our consideration here in Proverbs 6 ought to help us out a little bit. Give us a little comfort with reference to the unbridled and arrogant, worthless and wicked, antisocial uh, exploiter of society. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, he'll be broken and there will be no healing. A righteous God takes note of all wrongdoing and all wrongdoers, and he will deal with them in his way. In fact, God's judgment upon that person, even this side of heaven, can come so suddenly that it will be not only sudden, but also that person could be beyond repair. Look, and there will be no healing. Am I saying there is no remedy for the wicked and worthless member of society? I'm not saying that at all. But here's the problem. The only remedy is Christ Jesus. And this one, this unrepentant, wicked and worthless one, in arrogance, refuses the only remedy for sin, and that is the Lord Jesus. Now, God is loving, and he stands nearby and ready in Christ to forgive. However, this intensely loving God is also indisputably holy. Therefore, he hates things we are capable of apart from him, and therefore he judges it in a very ferocious way. In fact, here are the things more specifically God hates. Verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination. So you may have identified some of these things in your previous discussion. Here's the first, verse 17. Haughty eyes. God hates it. Eyes are mentioned first, you see, because it's through our eyes that we see and evaluate uh, other people. So this is about how uh, prideful people see others. Generally, the haughty, prideful person uh, overvalues himself and undervalues everybody else. This one sees himself to be greater and better and bigger and wiser and stronger than everyone around him. And uh, it's often as reflected in his or her eyes, which is sort of a symbol of the person's heart. Interesting, you can see this in some of the presidential debates, it seems to me. Um, <clears throat> the evil person simply thinks he's got it together and nobody else does, this haughty individual. In fact, this kind of person, in essence, thinks he's even greater than God. And thus he seems to, uh, this particular haughty person, seems to accept his or her own humanity and uh, finiteness uh, and give way to God's godness. This person is really confusing things and is acting more sometimes as if he is the creator than the creature. And so though he, she, we are but dust, Still, this particular person, uh, whose haughtiness God hates, elevates himself way beyond his humanity. In fact, someone uh, called William MacDonald said of this kind of prideful, arrogant person, pride is dust deifying itself. That's what we are, folks. We have a very down-to-earth beginning from the dust God made us. Oh, 
he, he, he dignified us by making us in his own image. But let's not forget our roots. It's from the dust. And pride, said Mr. McDonald, is dust deifying itself. So of the seven things we'll see the Lord hates, pride is first in the order. Why? Well, I think it's because it gives rise to all other sins. I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it. Uh, my purpose is to get all the gusto. I, I will do all that which uh, profits me and pleasures me. And, and the other reason why I think pride is first in the list is this. A pride renders a man or woman unwilling to accept the grace of God. Do you know God's grace is something you have to subject yourself to? You have to yield to it. You have to say, I cannot earn right standing with God. I cannot save myself. You, 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 have, to, you have to put yourself beneath the gracious provision of God. And you have to call out to him as an empty one. And you have to say, oh God. Would you grant me right standing through the blood of your son? Because that's the only work that could pay the debt I owe. So you see, see pride uh, uh, wages war against the grace of God. I think that's why God hates it, and it's mentioned first. But here's what else he hates, a lying tongue. See, uh, to lie is to distort reality. It, it's to intentionally, here's what lying is, in my opinion. It's to intentionally distort the truth for the purpose of harming another person. God hates it. Why? Because, it, because he's the God of truth, and thus lying is fundamentally contrary to his nature. And here's another reason why God hates it. Lying interferes with healthy, wholesome human relationships. And this is implying God wants us to be in good, trusting, safe human relationships as members of society. And lying really interferes with good human relationships. So God hates a lying tongue. You know what else he hates? Hands that shed innocent blood. God hates the one who has such disregard for the value of human life, that he is willing to take someone's life, sometimes merely because he's been insulted or offended. It's unrestrained anger, which the murderer says, I have a right to give vent to, because that one whose life I'm going to take is not worth much at all. God hates that one. Verse 18 he hates a heart that devises wicked plans. So this is about the schemer in our society who has no hesitation in planning to bring harm to others if in so doing he will bring profit or personal gain to himself. God hates that. And he also hates feet that run rapidly to evil. This is the person who has high enthusiasm for doing that which is wrong. This is the person who doesn't only uh, steal for personal gain. This is the vandal who just enjoys wrongdoing for no reason other than it's wrong to 
do. This is not the one who falls into or slides into sin. We are all capable of that. This is the peculiar and exceptional individual in society who's not falling into sin. No, this is one who's running into sin. He desires rapidly to do evil. Now, notice something interesting about these three verses, verses 16, 17, and 18 that we've just looked at. The first five things the Lord hates, do you see this, are represented by body parts. And if you think about these body parts, they move from the top down, roughly. So first we start with haughty eyes right here, then a lying tongue, see the movement? Uh, then hands shedding innocent blood, then a heart devising wicked plans, and then feet uh, running rapidly towards evil. It's a memory device oftentimes found in Old Testament scripture so as to be less prone to commit these sins which God hates. You can remember their body. They're represented by body parts which stop from the top, uh, start from the top down. So these are five things the Lord hates, but there are seven listed. The last two are not behaviors that God hates. Now, this may be a shock to your system, but they're about people whom God hates. Now, we, we, God is love. We, we know this. And, and yet, I think I can demonstrate to you here that there are categories of people whom, though he be the God of love, he hates. No, I, not their sin, them as sinners. Now, I know we say this, God hates the sin, and but loves the sinner, and that's surely true, but maybe it's a little simplistic. I, I think I can show you here. No, God hates the sinner. Uh, uh, now, hang on before you run me out of town here. Let, 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 we're just looking at the text here. So, 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 so for instance, let me share with you uh, a Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Listen, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. I didn't, I'm just reading you the text here. You hate, remember, not the iniquity. You hate all who do iniquity. I think we may have underestimated the contempt a holy God has for sin and the one who commits it. Now, hang on. We're not done here yet, so don't, don't leave just yet. Uh, but, but, but hang in there. We're just dealing with it. If I'm reading this wrongly, please let me know. Not now. Uh, some other time. Uh, so, so here then are two uh, kinds of people, I think you'll see, who are hated, literally hated by God. Here's the first, verse 19. A false witness who utters lies. And second, one who spreads strife among brothers. Folks, God, in essence... Uh, hates people who are anti-social, anti-society. Fundamentally, both of these are. These are people who break up relationships and disrupt community. These are people who subvert justice and break apart the bonds that hold every element of society together. God hates those kinds of people. A false witness is someone who commits perjury, as in a court of law. His goal is either to frame the innocent or free 
the guilty. And God hates that because it disrupts the very foundations of an orderly society and its justice system. So God hates a false witness who utters lies, and he also hates one who spreads strife among brothers. God fiercely opposes those who are all too willing to bring about disharmony in society, in families, and in the church. God hates those who either from the outside of the church or from the inside of the church cause strife amongst its members. Now, sometimes sincere church members become so passionately enveloped uh, by a uh, proposal, a uh, philosophy, a perspective, a new ministry idea. Sometimes good church members become so passionately consumed by it that their zeal proceeds even at a cost to peace, tranquility, and harmony in the body. I know this happens because I've been guilty of it my, my, myself. I'm not an uh, easygoing person. And so sometimes when I see something, this is right. Boy, I go for it as a crusader. And sometimes, um, though I'm persuaded the cause is right, I, 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 I go through the body with a club. I haven't done it so much here a few times, but in other places where I got thrown out of. It's misdirected zeal. A good church member, I'm not talking about a good church member, can be so consumed with a new vision. A, you know, church, this is what we're not doing. We're not doing this, Sagemont Church. A person can become a good church member so consumed with this uh, uh, new revelation that they push and they, and they pull and they promote, even at a cost to harmony, in the body, and even at a risk to producing discord. I must tell you this, God hates that. So we have to be really careful that our zeal for something we are certain is the missing element in our church. Uh, we have to be careful uh, to make sure it doesn't end up causing strife and discord in the fellowship. A better approach is to share with the right people in a church Leaders, deacons, staff, I don't know, anyone you want to, share your thought, your idea. And maybe once, maybe twice, sure, maybe three times, and then entrust it to God. And if it falls on deaf ears, your responsibility is fulfilled. If people you have shared with lack enthusiasm for it, just entrust them to God. He's big enough to correct them or, or uh, convict them. You don't, have to, you don't have to push unduly. I'm sharing this to myself as much as I am to you because I'm finding out God hates those who, he hates those who cause strife among brothers. Sometimes overzealous Christians seek to attract followers so as to win them to their cause. So if they've gone through channels in the church and have met with resistance to the idea, then sometimes what they do is they pull people to them, you know, let's have lunch, let's do this, you know, and, and then they, they start uh, uh, dividing the body, you see. And God hates that. They may present themselves to uh, folks as uh, ones working for a very good cause, but, but they, 
uh, at the same time may become so resistant to reason and counsel and the authority uh, delegated to the leadership of the church that sometimes they end up maybe unintentionally sowing seeds of strife and discord and I'm telling you, God hates, it says right here, the one who spreads strife among brothers. I remember Psalm 133.1. I memorized it years ago. Behold, God, this is what God's about. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That's what God wants. And he hates those who cause strife, discord, and disunity. Would you like to hear that in Hebrew? Just a little Hebrew? Would you like a little Hebrew from a little Hebrew? <laughs> this is free. It means nothing, but I just I happen to know it. It says, Hinematov umanayim shevet achim gam yachad. We used to sing it. Hinematov umanayim. Join in. Shevet achim gam yachad. We would sing this repeatedly. We Jewish people who have opinions about everything need to be reminded, state your opinion, but don't impose your opinion. Uh, don't go on a crusade every time you have a thought or think you have a better idea. Wait for an open door. Wait for God to give opportunity. Present your proposal and then get out of the way. So what is it uh, in uh, this passage that is painfully revealed to us. I think it's the sinful depravity of our nature as people. It's very painful to see uh, the things we are capable of, each of us, and that God hates those things which we are capable of apart from him. So this passage, that's what, this is why it's so unattractive, presents the depravity of man juxtaposed with the holiness of God. So pure and holy is he, in fact, that he hates our sin. And how much does he hate it? He hates it enough to require the payment of a penalty for it and the payment for the penalty of our sin could only be provided by the death of his own sinless son. That's how much God hates sin. If there was any other way for our sin to be dealt with, do you think God would have sent his son to die an excruciating death for one such as you and I? There was no other way. This is just how in Intensely, God is opposed to human sin. It cost his only begotten son to deal with it, the debt incurred by our sin that we could not pay. Uh, John 3.16, I, I love this verse. Look, God hates sin. But he's willing to affix his love on those of us who sin. Listen, for God, have you heard this one before? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This does not look, this is, this, 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 this is not a, a contradiction. He's intensely holy and therefore hates sin. But he loves us so much he provided the penalty for it. It's magnificent. 
Folks, I had the privilege the other day of spending time with Dr. Denny Autry. Uh, he's the dean of our seminary. And what a privilege it is, by the way, to have our seminary here, 15 minutes or less uh, from our location. I was there the other day. I, I, I had uh, time with Dr. Autry, who's a member of our church and a wonderful Bible teacher and just a, just a godly man. And I was able, uh, I was a little early for the appointment, so I was walking through the halls and I could hear what was going on in some of the classrooms. And I just stayed out of the way out in the hall and I just listened. It was great. Great professors enthused about truth and imparting with every ounce of their being and wonderful knowledge, imparting great biblical truth to uh, men and women of every kind, diverse kind who, who are going to be equipped for ministry or just to be uh, more wholesome, biblically astute Christians. So then I had time with Dr. Autry, and we, we were just speaking of a variety of things, including Proverbs. And uh, he shared something with me, uh, and I asked him if I could share it with you, and, and he granted me permission. He said, uh, with reference to this text, the things that God hates, he said, this is written by Solomon, and uh, do you remember who Solomon's dad was, don't you? David. Now, when Solomon, Dr. Autry was suggesting, I think he's right, was growing, uh, Solomon became more painfully aware of the horrific sins his father David committed earlier on. Uh, in Solomon's life and before. You remember David, he was a king, yet he uh, had an unacceptable relationship with somebody else's wife. Remember her name was Bathsheba? And then, as if that isn't horrific enough, he came up with a very deliberate plan uh, leading to the demise of her husband. His name was Uriah. This is very serious. And Dr. Archie was pointing out uh, this, uh, suggesting maybe for this reason, uh, 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 Solomon highlighted these five body parts and things that uh, the Lord hates because he uh, came to be aware of the fact each one uh, was one his own father had committed. Look, haughty eyes. I've been to... Israel to Jerusalem, as have some of you, I stood uh, on an elevated area where David had his palace. You look across a valley to another hill lower, there Bathsheba lived. She was bathing on a flat roof so he could look down literally upon all the citizenry and with haughty eyes gaze upon this woman who belonged by marriage to another man, and yet with haughtiness and pride say, I will not be restrained by rules and regulations and statutes and ethics and morals. I'm the king. I want her. Send for her. Haughty eyes, a a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. 
uh, uh, David had uh, Bathsheba's husband put on the front lines where the probability of him dying was increased quite a bit. A heart that devises wicked plans. David didn't just glance upon this bathing beauty. He focused his attention, deliberately schemed to make contact with her again. He did not slide into nor fall into sin. His uh, Feet ran quickly to it. He schemed about it. He pulled it off. He made it happen. It was not spontaneous. It was premeditated. Feet that run rapidly to evil. And Denny was suggesting, don't you think this is good? I think he's right. I came dangerously close to claiming this as my own. But it's recorded, so I figured it would catch up with me eventually. This is Dr. Denny Autry's insight. Uh, maybe Solomon highlighted these five things as being those God has such contempt for. Maybe Solomon highlighted those because he saw these things manifested in the life of his own father. Now, I want to tell you something about that man's father, David. Though God hates the kinds of things David did. David turned to this uncompromisingly holy God, loving God, and found forgiveness. Psalm 51, be David's words, Solomon's dad, the uh, adulterer with Bathsheba, the one who was complicit in a murderous plan, he said, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only I have sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. Purify me, David said. No, David begged. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And all that about David, which God hated, was tossed behind God's back. And David was washed and cleansed, contingent on his confession of sin and his turning to a holy God for mercy. He made no excuses. I am this way because of my parenting. I had a bad, I'm in a bad mood. I deserve a break today. Everybody's doing it. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. That's confession of sin. Then he turned to Almighty God, threw himself upon his grace and uh, mercy. Purify me with hyssop, I shall be clean. If you were to wash me, O God, I shall be whiter than snow. And David moved from one whose behaviors were an abomination to God. He moved from one referred to in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. So I want to ask you this. Maybe you're one 
who has committed behaviors such as those in the list we uh, inventory denied, the list of transgressions God hates. Maybe you're one for whom God has had contempt for your rebellious, sinful ways. Maybe, maybe. You probably, however, have not out-sinned David. How did David move from one absolutely vulnerable to the holy wrath of God to someone cleansed, freed, purified, he said by hyssop. Do you know you can, if you've been the way of David, continue with part B. You can be this one who leaves this place, head up, shoulders back. Oh, God. A burden has been left behind. Uh, the agent of purification is not hyssop. Listen, it's the blood of the Lord Jesus. If there's a color to sin, I know this is a figure of speech, but if there's a color to sin, you might be surprised to know it's red. <laughs> it says this in Isaiah. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. What is it that can cover up for the scarlet nature of our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Would you make it your prayer, even right where you sit? Oh, God, I have sinned against you and you only. And I do it because I'm a sinner by nature, and that's on my heart. I've run to evil. I've had haughty eyes. All of these things are true of me. Let this be true of me. Cleanse me by an application of the blood of your son to my scarlet sin so that I could be cleansed and free. Come into my life risen, hitherto crucified, but now risen Savior. Forgive my sin. Cleanse me. <laughs> and let me be thought of in your eyes as one who is a man or a woman after your own heart. I'm telling you, it could take place tonight. Psalm 51 could be your song on into eternity. Don't miss the opportunity to leave this place absolutely cleansed, free, inhabited by Almighty God, adopted into his family, and on the way to an entirely different lifestyle until it leads you, whenever this life is over, into the arms of the Lord Jesus forevermore. Why would you say no? Do not let your inherent pride wage war against God's grace. Here's a gift, he says. Take it. Take it. For free. That's an expensive price for we who are proud people. 
but it's an inexpressible gift. Humble yourself. Say, oh God, I accept your gift of salvation. I accept your gift of forgiveness. And Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Lord Jesus, your many things, principally, you're the Savior. Therefore, save those here tonight who are lost. You've come to seek and to save those who are lost. On the basis of your grace and mercy, find lost ones in our gathering tonight. Impress upon them how abhorrent their sin is to you and how infinite is your willingness to love that very one and heap upon that one the cleansing power of your blood. If only that one would say, I accept your salvation, Lord Jesus. Oh God, we pray that that be the case tonight. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.